no matter how, how much, to what extent, professional football is promoted or basketball or hockey, the game for fantasy, for history, for a certain kind of illusion, the American pastime is still baseball. You think of the green fields. You think in the past very often, too, as much as the present. You think of expanses of grass and the diamond and country boys of the past, baseball. And uh, there's a book written called Shoeless Joe, and the name evokes another memory, the Black Sox scandal, the Chicago White Sox, who threw the World Series, eight players did it in 1919, to the underdog Cincinnati team. The Sox at the time considered the greatest baseball machine ever. And Shoeless Joe Jackson was one of the men banned from the game. And the book dealing with memories and reality by the Canadian writer W.P. Kinsella, Bill Kinsella, is the subject uh, today. Houghton Mifflin, uh, the publishers. In a moment, W.P. Kinsella's guest and Shoeless Joe. If I can't have what I want most in life, then I'll pretend I had it in the past and talk about it and live it and relive it until it is real and solid and I can hold it to my heart like a precious child once I've experienced it so completely, no one can ever take it away from me. It's W.P. Kinsella reading a passage somewhere toward the end of the book, Shoeless Joe. Uh, an old-time ball player, Eddie Sissons, who may or may not have been a ball player, an old-time fan, is really telling what appears to be the theme of your book, isn't it? Yes, Eddie wanted very much to have played for the Chicago Cubs, and... He didn't in reality make it, but he makes believe that he did. Yeah, I know, but that's, that's so much with, with old-timers or young-timers, for that matter. The idea that if your life itself was not too eventful, if you were part of something, and what did Eddie want to be part of? What Baseball, He's, a pro baseball player. Right, right. He, uh, it's interesting how Eddie came to be. I was standing on a street corner in Iowa City, Iowa in 1977, and a very tall old man carrying a white cane came up to me and sort of poked the cane in my navel and said, tell me the time. And I said, it's 2 o'clock. He said, oh, good, I have five minutes to catch my bus. Did you know I used to play for the Chicago Cubs? And I said, no, I didn't. And he said, well, I'm 87 years old, and my name is such and such, and I played with Tinker to Evers to Chance. Does that mean anything to you? And I said, it sure does. And I made arrangements to interview him, and I had all sorts of wonderful fantasies. I would phone Ernie Banks, and they would have this man throw out the first ball, and I'd get to sit in the box seat, and there'd be an article for the Trib and something for Sports Illustrated. And I dropped what I was doing, and I raced off to the library and got out the baseball encyclopedia, and nothing. Uh, he was a storyteller, just like I am. So he, this old man, uh, thought, or at least told you, he played with these giants of the past. Yes. He never did, though. No, no. no I, there was no record of him ever having been there, and I didn't uh, go back to interview him because I didn't want to uh, cause him pain. But because of your writing about him, he was a subject of articles? No. no. Oh, no. no. Oh, this was made up. This was, He made yeah. everything up. He made every, I, oh, he I said he wasn't sports illustrated. Yes, and then, uh, and then I decided... Uh, these were the things that I was fantasizing, that if he had been the oldest living Chicago Cub, that I would be able to do. And uh, then I decided that I was going to use this man in Shoeless Joe as part of the novel. 
And so this is also an integral part of the novel because it deals with fact and fantasy. This old man was inventing something of a past, and you invented some. That is the boy, the young guy, the young father, Ray Kinsella, who is not you, and yet a reflection of you. That's right. That's right. Decides I, to what? Bring back the ghosts. He has a cornfield. Yes, essentially, uh, a young Iowa farmer named Ray Kinsella is sitting on his porch one evening when he hears the disembodied voice of a baseball park announcer give him the message, if you build it, he will come. And Ray, when he hears this message, knows that he must build the outline of a baseball stadium, but a perfect left field, and that if he builds a perfect left field in his cornfield, that Shoeless Joe Jackson will come back and play on it. The he, of course, Shoeless Joe Jackson, uh, the, as you say back in the old days, the peerless left fielder of perhaps one of the greatest teams ever assembled, the Chicago Black Sox, that uh, eight of whom stars through the World Series, Cincinnati in 1919, they were barred. Now, he was a farmer and he made this cornfield of baseball. Now, what made you think of all the players, Shoeless Joe? Was your father an old-time ball fan? My father was a great baseball fan. He had uh, traveled the uh, length and breadth of the United States and had seen all 16 major league teams that there were at that time before he settled down in Canada and had me at quite a, an old age, and I, uh, I never saw him play baseball. But uh, we lived uh, in absolute isolation in the uh, outback in Alberta and uh, I was an only child and uh, no children uh, around at the neighbors and I thought I was a small adult until I was 10 years old and my dad uh, on his infrequent visits to the city would bring back a copy of the St. Louis Sporting News mm -hmm. and taught me how to uh, read box scores and about players and told me stories about the baseball greats that he had seen before I even knew what the game was. It was, uh, it was interesting because I, at uh, at 10 years of age, I, I moved to the city and uh, have been suffering culture shock ever since. And I, I distinctly remember the first time I was in a baseball game. At, at recess, I was shoved into this game and handed the bat, and I was smart enough to know that if you held the bat, you probably should hit the ball. So I hit the ball, and then I stood and watched it. Mm. And uh, everyone was yelling at me, run, run. And I said, why, where? And someone finally grabbed me by the arm and led me to first yeah. base. And uh, by that time, I'd been thrown out. But uh, that was my first experience with baseball myself. But in the meantime, your father told you about these professional ball players, how to read a box score. He read the Sporting News, St. Louis Sporting News. And among the players he told you about, I assume, was Shoeless Joe. Yes, I, I didn't quite comprehend the, the business at the time, but he told me about Shoeless Joe ending his playing days, playing for $1.50 a day in the textile leagues in Carolina, and how he had been railroaded by big business and uh, bad management. You know, as, as uh, you say that, and Nelson Algren, who wrote a great deal about uh, the Black Sox uh, in, the, in his memoir, Chicago City and the Lake, in his last book, last published book, the last Carousella collection, he has one called uh, The Swede Was a Hard Guy, The Shortstop, Risberg. And the last two paragraphs might be a good lead-in to the book, Shoeless Joe, with my guest, W.P. Kinsella. The man in deep left field in the uniform, muddied at the knees, with the shadows of 50 seasons behind him, isn't who you think it is. Funny, this too is fantasy. See? Mm -hmm. For Shoeless Joe is long, is gone, long gone, with a long yellow grass blade between his teeth and lucky hairpin 
in his hip pocket. And what a patch of spiked sand around third looks like 50 years after. Only a turning wind may remember. Only a wind that keeps turning, turning around an abandoned ballpark that blows and blows, forever blowing, always, always, away from home. Mm. And of course, that again, somehow there was something mythic about Shoeless Joe and his colleagues. That's right. It's, it's the very name, Shoeless Joe, uh, that conjures up all sorts of images. These were larger-than-life people. It's the same as Moonlight Graham. I, I discovered this man in the baseball encyclopedia, and I said, what a marvelous name, Moonlight Graham. Yeah, and now there was an actual player named Moonlight Graham, Archibald Graham. Right. Who actually, what, a few times was at bat with the Giants? Uh, he it? never made it to bat. He played he one half inning yeah. uh, for the New York Giants in 1905, and uh, the Giants were ahead 11-1 to 1 in a game with Brooklyn. And, uh, we're talking about what year, roughly? 1905. 1905. And I guess uh, John McGraw said, uh, okay, kid, go in there and stand in right field and try not to make any mistakes. And that was his uh, sole appearance in the major leagues. So what Ray Kinsella does, that's whoever Ray Kinsella is, this guy who might be part of you, W.P. Kinsella. He used your last name, your actual last name, using it. Yes. So that gave us the idea that indeed it might be you. Well, there are Ray. Uh, there is certainly a lot of me and Ray yeah. and a lot of Ray and me. But he does what? This farmer, whose father was a fan, as your father was, he calls back. He's got, he built, he heard the voice, like Joan of Arc, he heard the voice. And the voice said, Shoeless Joe would return if you built the right ballpark for him. Yes, so he, he builds the ballpark against, uh, against all odds. I mean, everyone thinks that he is extremely strange, as anyone would, to be doing such a thing. But he builds the, the ballpark, and it has a certain magic about it. And Shoeless Joe Jackson does indeed come back to play on it and suggests to Ray that if he were to finish the entire stadium, why the other disgraced players would also come back to play on this field. And Ray does indeed do that. But at this point, he hears the disembodied voice of the baseball announcer again with another cryptic message, which is, ease his pain. Ease his pain. And he knows immediately that the pain that is to be eased is that of J.D. Salinger, the reclusive genius American novelist who has been holed up in New Hampshire for goodness knows how many years. Now here is something, not out of the blue, but because there's something in, in the mind of W.P. Kinsella of you that caused you to suddenly bring in J.D. Salinger. What made you bring J.D. Salinger into the Well, <laughs> that's difficult to say. I, I just suddenly knew that I was going to write something about Salinger. I'm a great admirer of his, and it uh, it somehow seems unfair that he's buried away there in New Hampshire and, and that we're not allowed to enjoy his work. So I, I said, what if? what if? What if Ray goes and, and actually talks to this man and takes him to a baseball game at Fenway Park? And this uh, I just went ahead with it. I like to do audacious things yeah. in, uh, in so, my writing. So Ray Kinsella, the protagonist of the book, visits out indeed kidnaps him and takes him from park to park. But before that, was it possibly something in Catcher in the Rye? We know there's a reference to his... Uh, Holden refers to his dead brother whom he loved, Allie, mm-hmm. who once had a left fielder's mitt. Now, Chulich Joe played left field. 
He had a left fielder's mitt with something written on it. It might have been Shoeless Joe's batting average or something. Could that have been the uh, spark? Well, I'm, I don't think so, because I went through and, uh, and read this again after I decided to write about Salinger, and I began digging up uh, his uncollected stories and found that he did indeed write a story called A Young Girl in 1941 with No Waste at All, and it was published in Mademoiselle in 1947, in which the main character is named Ray Kinsella. And that, that was really at the point that I, that I discovered I had something. I had a bridge then for my character named Ray Kinsella. Uh, I decided at that point that I would name the narrator Ray Kinsella and that he would have a bridge to go and, and walk up to Salinger's door and say, look at me, I'm a character from one of your stories. And Salinger, of course, would say, so what? Yeah, so that, that that may have led to it, the name Kinsella. But he said, to ease Joe Jackson's pain, the pain of being kicked out of ball, and you ask him here, that is you, I say, Ray Kinsella, is asking Joe, the ghost of Joe, uh, it must have been, what was it like? I can't find the words. When I guess when he was kicked out, suspended and kicked mm -hmm. out. And he says, like having part of me amputated, slick and smooth and painless. And by, he's talking about a friend of his. He's a country boy. He's from Carolina, wasn't he? Yes. And where he went back. Uh, and he, a, a buddy of his running across a field, a piece of shrapnel took off his friend's, his friend's head off. The friend ran headless for several strides before he fell. And somehow he talks about years, years later, this is the shoeless Joe talk. I wake up in the night with the smell of the ballpark in my nose and the cool of the grass in my feet, the thrill of the, of the grass. So why don't you read Joe talking to Ray Kinsella, his feelings about the game. Okay. I loved the game, Shoeless Joe went on. I'd have played for food money. I'd have played free and worked for food. It was the game, the parks, the smells, the sounds. Have you ever held a bat or a baseball to your face? The varnish, the leather. And it was the crowd, the excitement of them rising as one when the ball was hit deep. The sound was like a chorus. Then there was the chug-a-lug of the tin lizzies in the parking lots and the hotels with their brass spittoons in the lobbies and brass beds in the rooms. It makes me tingle all over like a kid on his way to his first doubleheader just to talk about it. Yeah. And then, of course, comes a part that is very applicable today. He's saying something about the sun. What happened to the sun? And now we come to the thing uh, touched about just the very beginning. How's that? What happened to the sun? And you're saying that only Wrigley Field right now has completely day. So we come to that thing, don't we? Mm -hmm. the, the nostalgia for things past. And, uh, of course, baseball is, is so wonderful in that respect because of the timelessness of the game. I mean, we have the we have the strange managers and the agents uh, involved in the game today, but uh, when the players actually get out on the field with the exception of artificial turf and the designated hitter rule, they're playing the same game that Shoeless Joe played. Yeah, except that, see, it was an afternoon in the sun, summer game, mm -hmm. and spring game, you see. Mm -hmm. uh, the fact is, sitting in the bleachers with some sort of a striped sun, you know, uh, so that's gone pretty much. Pretty, pretty much. I, I was delighted to, to see that the legislature here has passed a yeah. law forbidding them to put lights in Wrigley Field. Yeah. Now, in, Ray Kinsella has these games, these ghost games, in the daytime, doesn't he? Uh, some of them are daytime, yeah. some of them are at night. Some are night. And so 
we continue with what a fantasy come come true. He's saying to his wife, what is Ray saying about watching the left fielder? Watch the left fielder, meaning Joe, of course. The ghost of Joe's out there. He'll tell you all you need to know about a base. Watch his feet as the pitcher accepts the sign that's ready to pitch. A good left fielder knows what pitch is coming. He can angle the bat where the ball's going to be hit. And if he's good, how hard it's going to be hit. And then, now they're all coming back. What is it Shoeless Joe said? What? What's the promise he made to Ray Kinsella? Well, if he builds the remainder of the field, the other players will come back and play on it. And, of course, there's the subplot involving Ray's father uh, where Joe promises him, uh, if you build the field, well, uh, we'll, we'll give your catcher a tryout. Ray's father is long dead and has been a catcher in the minor mm. leagues. He was a, a minor league catcher, and so his ghost, too. So it's an, it's an evocation of past and the ghost's return, isn't it? Yes. yes. You yourself, since we now begin, uh, before we take our break and we come to the adventures with J.D. With Salinger, uh, you visit a lot of ballparks, is that it? Oh, yes. Uh, my wife and I travel all across America every summer, uh, 15 or 20,000 miles, uh, visiting various baseball stadiums. Uh, uh, I mean, other, other people go to see museums or go to square dancing contests or something, but we follow the baseball you teams. Found, well, uh, let me ask you, what is it you, you usual question, what is it you get out of it? Oh, goodness, that, that's difficult. It's, it's just the, the thrill of the game. Of, uh, I, I don't particularly care who wins. I just like to watch professional baseball. This is also, at the time of your writing this book, Roger Angel of the New Yorker writes those beautiful long essays on baseball written, putting together a book called Late Innings. He says the same thing. It's not a question of who wins. It's the nature of the event itself. Yes, yes. It's it's just watching the game, the the ballet of the fielders, the sounds of the game. In one spot, you're sitting in the empty ballpark. Have you been in an empty ballpark? Oh yes. Yeah. And you say an empty ballpark at night must at night must be like the inside of a pyramid. We're like archaeologists exploring new territory. We climb the steps, stare out over the field from behind home plate peanut shells scrunch underfoot and last night's waxy cups and hot dog wrappers brush against our ankles. Are you and Salinger now are visiting it. And I suppose, I suppose we have to describe now uh, the beginning of the trip before, you, before Ray Kinsella runs into Moonlight Graham, who's now a small... Oh, Moonlight Graham, whose name actually appeared in the 1905 lineup Yes. With the yes. giants mm -hmm. of John McGraw, as long since, I assume he'd be, he'd be, well, 1905, he'd be, it's 80, 80, 78 years, he'd be over 100. Yes, he, I, he I, passed away in 1965. Oh, you knew that? Oh, yes. What did you do? How did you find out about Moonlight Crane? Well, uh, the baseball encyclopedia indicated that he died in a little town called Chisholm, Minnesota in 1965. So uh, at the summer I was writing this book, my wife and I drove up to Chisholm and uh, investigated the life and times of Moonlight Graham, much as it is done in the book, except that yeah, my wife... Yeah, there was wife, a chapter yes, called The Life and Times yes, of Moonlight Graham. Yes, except that my wife played the Salinger part uh, in there. Uh, she is a journalist who likes to do interviews, and I am a person who likes to lurk in the background uh, with a notepad and, uh, and just sort of see uh, what is happening. 
Uh, so the, the material there about Doc Graham is essentially true. He was attending Johns Hopkins University when he played his half inning for the uh, Giants and uh, was the town doctor in this little town. And uh, uh, truth, of course, is always stranger than fiction. I walked into the newspaper office, talked to the editor, whose name I use in the book, Vita Ponikvar, and uh, I said, do you know where I might find a picture of Doc Graham? And she turned around and parted the ferns on her filing cabinet, and here is a photograph, not only of Doc Graham, but of Doc Graham in his 1905 New York Giants uniform. I mean, Fantastic. The, uh, he was a general practitioner Yes. in the small town where he was raised, that is a hometown. Uh, no, he came from Carolina and Carolina. Uh, was not feeling well once. And he uh, was in Rochester, not feeling well. And his friend said, well, why don't you get up and, and get some of the high country air up in the mining country? And he took the train to the end of the line, which was then Chisholm, uh, got off, looked around, liked it, and stayed there for the rest of his life. So this ball player who had his one moment of glory with the Giants, never at bat, had another time of glory as the small town doctor. Yes, yes. He says somewhere in the book, I, I, I'm very, I'm a very lucky man. I've always done the things I like most: doctoring and playing baseball. Oh, so the, though you happen to say that in the book, it may well have been true too. Yes. So the book is the fusion of a spark meeting the old man whom you call Eddie Sissons, Kid Sissons, he yes. called himself. Yes. Or, or the actual Moonlight Graham, whom you looked up. You call him Doc Graham. I find this very amusing because. It's a pseudonym I used for a tough, small-time syndicate guy, independent operator of Chicago, an old-time fighter, another name. He was an old-time price fighter who also worked as bootlegger, as burglar, as a, a muscle man uh, years ago. And I, I called him Doc Graham. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> so we're talking to, to uh, Ray Kinsella and uh, the book, Ray Kinsella. I call you by the name of the protagonist. <laughs> well, that's all right. Bill W.P. Kinsella. Uh, Houghton Mifflin publishes a very imaginative work and a very moving one, too. It, by the way, you won the Literary Fellowship Award, which is a very prestigious one indeed. You get some quite uh, distinguished predecessors in the one of it. So we'll resume in a moment with the adventures of Ray Kinsella and his family, his wife and uh, small daughter. And that's your case, too, I assume. It's your wife... Well, sort of. My my wife is named Anne, yeah. and the wife in the book is named Annie, yeah. and uh, I have a couple of grown-up daughters. Yeah. But the adventures, and so we'll resume in a moment with Shula's Joe after this message. And so resuming with uh, W.P. Kinsella and his book Shula's Joe. Now we come to, we're more of, now Ray Kinsella has gone to the door. We know that J.D. Salinger is He's celebrated as not only for his writing, but for being a hermetic. He's a hermit, and it's impossible to crack the fortress he set up. So Ray decides to do that. Yes, he sits in the driveway until Salinger comes home and uh, convinces him one way or another to go with him to a baseball game at Fenway Park because Ray sincerely believes that Salinger is a baseball fan and uh, that he's missing out sitting there for 25 years not uh, not having seen a baseball game. I mean, Ray can't imagine that anyone could live for 25 years without seeing yeah. a baseball game. So he carries him off to Fenway Park to uh, watch a game. And they eventually become friends and they eventually receive a joint message from the scoreboard and the announcer at Fenway Park, which 
sends them off to Minnesota to investigate the life and times of Moonlight Graham, yeah. who we were talking about earlier. So these, and now, also before, on your way to see Salinger, you're stopping off at different cities, and then with him. And here are different encounters, one in a restaurant where a, um, a jilted swain tries to create trouble, and you're, you, you find yourself in various... So it's also a study of certain parts of the country as well. Yes, yes, I, I set Ray up to have these little adventures as he goes across the country, uh, possibly trying to show the, uh, the wilderness aspect uh, of America, the commercial aspect of, uh, of America, as contrasted to the purity of baseball, yeah. I suppose, if we're now looking he, for an intellectual explanation of see, what I was doing. Now you're something that Roger Angel also touches on in his book, Late Innings, the uh, innocence of baseball, the, the purity of the game itself, and uh, the craftsmanship of the players, uh, old as well as some of the better of the younger ones, as against the guys who run the game, which is something entirely different, isn't it? Oh, yes, yes. I, I had mentioned that before, that well, fortunately these men who, uh, who run the game can't get out on the field. They have to stay in the stands or the clubhouse or uh, somewhere. All they can do is yell at the players. They can't get out there yeah, and play. Thomas Steinbrenner uh, as a classic case in point. Yes. I hate yes. to use the word classic in reference to Steinbrenner, <laughs> but I mean a, a grotesque case in point. Mm -hmm. But so we come to, but throughout you're talking, our friends appear. Uh, Shoeless Joe and his colleague Chick Gandel, the first baseman, who was one of the leaders of the of the conspiracy to throw the series, and Buck Weaver's there, Swede Risberg. And what does he say, Joe? He's going to get these guys back, right? He's going to get these guys, his colleagues, to come back. Mm-hmm. Yes, if he... Uh when Ray Bill completes the field. So in, in essence, he, com he completes a whole baseball field, and then in the, the magic of it, the fantasy of it, is that when they, when they come to play, the, whole, the, the grandstands appear and the, uh, and the bleachers appear, and they have a crowd, and, uh, and everything becomes complete. Uh, I, I knew that, one, that, uh, that I was going to write about these different people, about Salinger, about Moonlight Graham, about uh, Eddie Sissons, who claims to be the oldest living Chicago Cub, and I suspected that if I brought them all back to the baseball yeah. stadium in Iowa, that uh, something wonderful would happen. Yeah. And I, I think it has. I, I think uh, this uh, yeah. is poetic. I suppose yeah. is one way to. It is well. It's, it's very moving when they're coming back and they recognize. Uh, they recognize Eddie Sissons. Here's the guy you met, the actual guy who became the. You know the the the, the character Eddie Sissons in your book. And he's, he wants to be buried in that cornfield, doesn't he? Mm -hmm. he uh, Eddie Sissons. He wants to be buried in his Chicago Cub uniform. Yeah. In a uh, Cub uniform. Yeah. But uh, it, it's, uh, the, no, uh, the novel Shoeless Joe is, is about fulfilling dreams, yeah. I think, and the power of dreams and following dreams, because each of these people in some way gets a wish that, uh, that they want. Uh, Doc Graham wants to come to bat in the major leagues. Uh, Eddie Sissons wants simply to play for the Chicago Cubs. Uh, Ray wants various things, and, and uh, they are through the power of, of faith and love and baseball, most of the wishes and the are fulfilled. And the players, uh, Joe Jackson's colleagues want to come back. They want to play again. They want to play. Yes. Again. They want yes. to play. There's one, 
something you mention here. This is Ray Kinsella explaining something to his daughter in the book. While I'm talking, I remember the story of how Shoeless Joe, after he'd been paid off, uh, the gamblers paid these guys nothing by the way, standards to throw the game because they were getting very little pay from the owner, Charles Comiskey, by the way. He was just very tight indeed. That they'd been paid off, tried to return the money. Joe did. And failing that, tried to take it to White Sox owner, Charles Comiskey. He got only as far as an accountant who slammed down a shutter, ending the conversation, leaving Joe alone in a darkened hallway. I think about how the sound of that slamming shutter must have haunted Joe the rest of his life. Now, is that based on fact? Yes, I read that somewhere, and I, it was uh, it was either in Eight Men Out or uh, there was a, a young man did a biography of Shoeless Joe mm-hmm. a year or so ago called Say It Ain't So, the yeah. Shoeless Joe Jackson right. story. So it was from one or the other of those. So this is, I know this has appeared in several uh, quarters, several books, that Joe, after all, was an illiterate country boy. Right. He couldn't read, or he was talked, but he apparently... The indication is he did want it. By this time, the righteous Comiskey wants no part of this. Though the fact that he gouged these guys is hardly mentioned in the conventional reports, you see. Right. And then he became self-righteous. And so they all come back. They all, they all return, uh, the, these guys. And in the meantime, something the dreams are fulfilled, as you're saying, of all of them. So I'm thinking about... Salinger. Now we come to Salinger. We come back and forth. He, I, on a strip with Ray, at first he was resentful, naturally. <laughs> he didn't know whether Ray had a gun or not, Is that at first. At first, But he's yes. going along rather easily, and, and but, but he's caught up in this fantasy, isn't he? Yes, yes. Your brother is there, and someone, another couple of guys want to, want to make this cornfield a, a commercial development of some sort. Yes, Ray's, uh, this is the, is the other conflict in the novel. Uh, Ray's brother-in-law uh, is uh, organizing a computer farming uh, business and uh, has bought up all the land around Ray, and Ray is struggling away on a quarter section, not making a living off it, and then, of course, running off and, uh, and doing these strange things when he should be looking after the farm. And uh, the the brother-in-law is trying to foreclose on the uh, mortgage, and uh, Ray's twin brother shows up at the uh, at the same time, and uh, he is the opposite of Ray. He is a carnival barker, and a cynic, and for a long long time can't see what is going on on the field. And this is one of the one of the things uh, Richard, the brother, finally says is, uh, "Teach me how to see, Ray." Yeah, that was it. He's the cynical guy who sees, who's the, who's the realist, he says. He sees things, you know, hard and fast. But uh, at the end, teach me, much like uh, the young writer in Zorba the Greek says to Zorba, teach me how to dance. Because uh, Zorba, too, was a fantasist. <laughs> I think that's uh, what I had in mind. <laughs> was that idea? Did, yes. And what about these guys? I'm looking for, while, while I'm looking for a certain passage, Involving uh, Ray and Salinger traveling, uh, the two, oh, the two, uh, the developers, two commercial guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're kind of thrown by. They can't quite figure it out themselves, can they? No, because they can't see what's uh, what's going on. But uh, they uh, they lose out 
eventually because they dream Ray, Ray and and Salinger dream of uh, of people coming from all over America, coming to the Midwest, seeking peace and quiet and tranquility through baseball and uh, w by instinct driving to this magic baseball stadium and. Uh, uh, Karen will be there selling tickets, and uh, and yeah. uh, the brother will be there selling tickets to the Phantom Baseball Stand, yeah. and from that they will get enough money to pay off the mortgage, and uh, the yeah. brother-in-law won't be able to foreclose on the farm and have his complete computer farming operation. Yeah. Everybody's dreams sort of come true, but there's a, there's a little switch at the end involving the relationship with J.D. Salinger, A. Kinsella, and the ballplayers, or the ghosts of the ballplayers. Mm -hmm. But... Toward the last part, you're talking about walking across the field now with Joe Jackson, Happy Felsch, Sweet Risberg, and we're talking squatting Indian style on the grass. And then you're describing, Joe says to you, oh, what will happen to all of you? Who asks that question? If this ballpark is raised, leveled, planted in corn, and Shulis Joe says, some of us waited a long time for this chance to come back. And then you've got what happened to the guys, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, Shulis Joe was the first of the eight bard players to die. Yes. 64. And then came that substitute, uh, the least known, Freddie McMullen. Freddie McMullen, mm -hmm. And then Buck Weaver. And by the way, Buck Weaver, there was a long campaign to get him back into baseball by fans mm -hmm. because he did not take any dough. As I gather, he just did not inform. That's right. He, his only crime was that he knew what was going on, but uh, he had nothing to do with taking money or anything. There was a move afoot to clear Joe's name also. Uh, he was scheduled to appear on the Tonight Show in uh, 1951, and uh, then he died before uh, mm -hmm. he could make the appearance. And then there was Lefty Williams who died, and Happy Felsch, Eddie Sycott in Detroit at 84, Chick Gandle, the first baseman, 82. Swede Risberg in California at the age of 81. The Swede was indeed a hard guy. That was Nelson Algren's piece. The Swede was yes. a hard guy. But there's something else. In your book, which has been you know, read by a good number of people, he was sent to Ted Williams, of course, one of the greatest left fielders of all, certainly one of the greatest hitters of all time. And he was a left fielder and was sent to Ted Williams, I suppose, for a comment. Would you mind? Well, we got a note back from uh, Mr. Williams' secretary um, who said, uh, while Mr. Williams liked the book very much, he hesitates to make a comment on a book that involves the uh, Black Sox scandal. Isn't that something? Uh, the fear, you know, the inhibition is that strong. He's afraid to talk about the blacks. That happened in 1919, the expose in 1920. That means 62 years ago, and Williams is retired from the game in any event, and it's that fear. Whereas the younger players today, I doubt whether someone like Tom Seaver or Reggie Jackson would have that inhibition or fear, see? I wouldn't think so. No, I'm sure they, they would talk. Of course they would. But isn't that amazing? It reminds you of some people, victims of the McCarthy blacklist, hesitant talking about it, or contemporaries of that time, whereas young kids would talk about it, what was it about, you see? Mm -hmm. Isn't that, so that Paul is still there, isn't it? Yes, it is. That's astonishing. You know, perhaps you could read some of this. Why don't you read this? Because 
They're asking Ray Kinsella about himself now on the farm, don't they? But make because he's a he's a farmer. Ray is a hard-working young farmer, isn't he? Yes, Ray. yes. He uh, he's not very successful. No. He, uh, uh, again, a little like me, I once scored zero on a mechanical aptitude uh-huh. test. So uh, there is a there is a lot of Ray uh, in in me. Is it? Uh, sure. Why don't you read that whole that whole passage? We have time. Okay. Um, Why can't you make a living on a farm like this, someone asks. And I explain that I am equipment poor and interest poor and that my income has not kept pace with the price of land or the price of fuel, which has tripled while my income has remained stable. What can we do to help, says Lefty Williams. I was born on a farm in Missouri. I got a strong back and I'm pretty handy with my hands. Several others nod. I farmed some too, says Buck Weaver. I've hoed a few acres of cotton myself, says Shoeless Joe with a smile. It's not the work that's killing me. It's paying for the equipment, I begin, but am cut off by Lefty Williams. How about horses, he says. Your machines do the work of ten men with horses, but here you sit with more men than you can use. Sell off your machines, pay off your loans, buy up a few horses, and we'll do the work for you. I remember horses, says Eddie Sissons. I grew up on a corn farm in Nebraska. This used to be my farm. Harrowing, disking, plowing, planting, picking, I've done them all. Johnny, the catcher, he was raised on a dirt farm in North Dakota, says Shoeless Joe, looking right at me. Bet he'd be willing to help out. Isn't it funny? We we also forget that these guys back then who played in 1918, 17, 19, were country boys, the great many. That's right. Because it was still primarily a rural country. Mm -hmm. I mean, it far, far more than today. Mm-hmm. Someone told me a story about uh, years later in uh, in Nebraska somewhere, uh, a barnstorming team uh, with the mysterious left-handed harvest hand as mm-hmm. their pitcher, who was surely Lefty Williams. Yeah. It's funny, you know, in uh, the book, which you know, I'm sure, The Glory of Their Times, Lawrence Ritter's collection of old-time players talking, Rube Marquardt speaks of coming off the farm and, of course, being had. I'm thinking about of course, back in those days, it's not today because the baseball players' union and uh, their awareness a little different today. They were really had and taken by oh. the guys who ran the game. Oh, yes. The uh, baseball players were tremendously exploited uh, uh, almost right up until the, uh, until the Kurt Flood case. Yeah. The free agency is has turned things around <laughs> entirely, but uh, I don't know. I, d- I can't begrudge them good money. Oh, no, I don't. I was merely commenting mm-hmm. on the difference yes. in the time. You see. There's a tendency in the part of fans, you know, to be, uh, not now, I think they're a little wiser, anti-ball player, because what seems an incredible amount of money, we forget the shortage of the years they have. They're the best, you know. One of the ball players, it may have been Jim Bouton, I think, or someone who said... Uh, no, it's a great relief pitcher for the Giants. A country boy. I forget his name. He pitched for a lot of teams. He was a prematurely gray-haired guy. I forget his name now. He's the one, we're the, the best in this world. For better or worse, we're the best. He says uh, 500 or so. And no one ever begrudges 500 of the, of the best of other professionals, say lawyers or doctors, uh, what they get. No one ever questions that. Yet our lifespan is shorter. And we may bring as much delight as they bring whatever the necessities are, good and bad, uh, yes, to us. But no one of it, because of the fact that it's a boy's game, 
that that aspect of it there. So at the end, at the end, the dreams are sort of fulfilled at the very end. The dreams are sort of fulfilled, but there's a switch. Meantime, J.D. Salinger, Ray's traveling companion, Ray Kinsella's traveling companion, is now caught up in it. Of course, at the end is about going out with the boys, the ghosts who are about to leave. Mm-hmm. Not, uh, not permanently, I don't think, although peop- some people interpret it that way. But it's... Uh... No, it's to go out to have a drink. You're hoping, because you, uh, that is Ray Kinsella, because he started out, aren't you sort of a thinking about going out with the guys? Isn't that it? Yes, yes. It's uh, the the question is what lies beyond the ballpark fence? Yeah, and uh, Ray sort of expects that it should be him uh, who gets to go there, but it's not. That's the oh, you 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 call that last part the rapture of yes. J.D. Salinger. And then you say, hey, wait a minute, this is not fair, you know. I think it'd be good if you could read this part. It's, it's quite uh, funny and moving. I think you could almost read this. And you it's not fair. And Salinger says, I never promised you life would be fair. <laughs> uh, yes, he's complaining. If Salinger says, no one ever promised you life would be swear, I'll do it, I swear. Uh, he's talking about tearing down the baseball park. My stomach hurts. I can feel cold sweat trickling down my sides. But Salinger remains silent, thoughtful. Karen has fallen asleep in my arms. Salinger reaches over, takes one of her tiny hands in his. Her small nails are blunt, her freckled fingers scuffed. All right, says Jerry, and he looks me squarely in the eye. All right, he says again. I gave the interview. What interview? You know damn well what interview, the one about baseball, the one about the polo grounds, the one that charged you up and sent you all the way to New Hampshire to find me, that one. You lied. Back then, I couldn't let anybody get that close to me. Karen stirs slightly as Salinger closes his hand over hers. I've thought of telling you, but I was saving it for the right moment. Well, I think this is definitely the right moment, I say indignantly. I was just contemplating destroying the field. I thought of turning them down, says Salinger. I really did, telling them it was you who created them, you who deserves to be first. But then I thought, they must know. There must be a reason for them to choose me, just as there was a reason for them to choose you and Iowa and this farm. Yes, there are obvious reasons why he has been chosen, and they all wash around me as I see Salinger staring staring tenderly down at Karen, and as he does, he nods toward the house, toward where Annie waits with her brilliant love. If you can package up your jealousy for a few minutes, you'll see that I'm right. I'm unattached. My family is growing up, and, he says, smiling sardonically at me, if I have the courage to do this, then you'll have to stop badgering me about the other business. I mean, publishing is such a pale horse compared to this. But what a story it will make. And his voice rises. A man being able to touch the perfect dream. I'll write of it. I promise. It's funny. I mean, it's funny and sad. And and, and uh, I was going to ask you the question where the J.D. Salinger uh, had received this book. 
I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I, I thought the publisher had uh, had sent him a copy. My fantasy, of course, is that 20,000 people will buy copies of Shoeless Joe and read it and then decide that Salinger must have a copy, so they'll go out and buy a second <laughs> one and he'll get bags and bags full of, uh, of mail stuffed with copies of Shoeless Joe. Now, I was thinking, since it deals with dreams and reality and what better uh, way toward the fulfillment of a dream for many young men in this country, those kids today, certainly kids of another time, dreaming of playing baseball full-time, full-time, you know. And so coming back to the eight, the eight, this is Nelson Ogren's uh, Swede was a hard guy, just this phrase, say they made a great ball club, the White Sox of 1917-18-19. Say it was the greatest Say the Swede, the shortstop Risberg, was a hard guy. Say he was the hardest. Say it again 50 seasons after. Then let it go at that. Let it go at that. Say the gamblers double-crossed them. Say Jackson was too ignorant and Felsch too dumb. Weaver too careful and Risberg too careless. Gandal too slick and Williams too silent. Say the press needed a villain so it could have a hero. Say because he'd been best the longest and had to be psychotic. Say it had, it must have been because he didn't understand how a man could be a hero in America one day and a bad guy the next. And then he cried on the stand, then he cried on the stand, then let it go at that. And I suppose that's part of it too. What impelled you to think of Shoeless Joe? I mean, you weren't thinking of Rogers Hornsby or of Babe Ruth, or Ty Cobb, or Tris Speaker, all great, of course, but Shoeless Joe. Yes, he was larger in a, in a field of men who are all larger than life. He was larger than most, a, a myth, in fact, and that, that was what propelled me into writing about him. Also that country boy, I mean, o- almost the, who just lived yes, to the, hit. The innocence of the man and the innocence of the game. What was the someone do you have it in your book? I know the fact that in that series that was thrown to the underdog Cincinnati team where the gamblers cleaned up, he couldn't play bad. That's true. Joe was the leading hitter in the nineteen nineteen series. He batted three seventy five and He batted three seventy five. I mean he couldn't play bad as Algren, but even if he tried. That that's was right. the point about it. That's right. But we're left then with this book, Shoeless Joe. My guest is W.P. Kinsella, Houghton Mifflin Publishers, and it comes back again to dream and reality, doesn't it? Yes, it's uh, a, a national fantasy is of playing baseball. Uh, another great fantasy that we all have is of having a life partner who will say to you, go ahead and do it when you're setting out to do something that everyone else in the world thinks is crazy. Mm-hmm. And this is, of course, is what Ray has in the book. He has a wife who says, oh, love, if it makes you happy, you should do it. When the farm is failing and he's building a baseball diamond in his cornfield. And I think we'd all like to have a life partner who would say that to us. We're also talking about imagination, of course, and, and fantasy and baseball. Yes. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Bill Kinsella, Houghton Mifflin Publishers of Shoeless Joe, winner of the Houghton Mifflin Fellowship Award of this year.